About once a month, we visit with our partners at the Southern Oregon University Laboratory of Anthropology for a segment we call Underground History. Chelsea Rose of Sula brings in people and stories related to unearthing our past. Today, Chelsea visits with Dr. Elisa Bullion. You are listening to Underground History, a collaboration between JPR and the Southern Oregon University Laboratory of Anthropology, or like we like to say, SULA. Um, I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and each month we take a deep dive into little-known aspects of history in Oregon and beyond. Today we're sticking with Oregon, and our guest is Alyssa Bullion, newly appointed physical anthropologist for the state of Oregon. Alyssa, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So you were recently hired to serve under the office of the Legislative Commission of Indian Services for the state, and this role is the first of its kind, right? It is, yes. It's the first of its kind for the state of Oregon, at least. Our uh, neighbors to the north in Washington have had their program for, I think, over 15 years at this point. So, uh, But it is, in fact, a, a new position for the state of Oregon. That is very exciting. And before we get into the weeds, why don't you tell our listeners what a physical anthropologist is so we get a sense of why it's so helpful for us to have one that's dedicated to serve our state. Sure. So I I do have to caveat this a little bit by saying that I think that my job title is not a complete misnomer, but um, might make some people think that my job is slightly different than it is. So in the kind of uh, United States canon of anthropology, when we say physical anthropologists, usually that is a discipline that covers really a wide variety of different types of study from primatology to genetics, evolution, um, to the study of, of human remains, both present and past. My, my title is accurate in the fact that I, I do, in fact, specialize in the study of human remains. However, I think in some ways uh, a slightly better or more accurate description of my position would be bioarchaeologist or biological archaeologist, and that's an archaeologist who focuses on the study of human remains and burials. So I think that a lot of times when people hear, uh, you know, the term physical anthropologist, they might think of bones or, uh, you know, people who really focus on the more forensic side of the science. But I am really heart and soul and, and functionally an archaeologist. So just to kind of clarify that, because I think my, my title does sometimes uh, seem a bit confusing. I'll show up and, and people expect me to maybe yeah, a forensics expert, but really uh, I'm, I'm an archaeologist. My specialization just happens to be the study of human remains and their burials. That's right. So the show Bones, you're talking about where Temperance Brenner, she works at the, I think it's called the Jeffersonian, and she helps like solve mysteries yes. using skeletal remains. That's what definitely I think comes to mind for a lot of folks. So when I took forensics a long time ago in college, there was a, I think it was called medico-legally significant or something, like a 50-year marker. So is that right? Like anything 50 years and younger, that's not your territory because that could be something tied to tied to like an active crime. So your stuff that's like way older, right? Yes. Well, so just to add a little bit of nuance to that, um, I work very closely with the medical examiners, both at the state and county levels. Um, and so, yeah, generally that, that 50-year mark is kind of a, a general rule of thumb, which is also the um, the federal standard for the kind of cutoff for what's considered to be archaeological in nature in the state of Oregon. That's actually 75 years. But the kind of the, the forensic, non-forensic designation, which is really the important distinction for, for my work, um, my jurisdiction is, yeah, kind of as you point out solely, the non-forensic remains, so remains that are not related to modern cases of missing persons or, or other um, other such law enforcement cases. So 
it's it is on one side um, tied to that 50 years, but it's it's really more of an analysis about what we can and can't determine about the remains and and how much how sure we are that they may or may not be forensic in nature. So it's it's slightly more complicated, and you know the discovery of human remains and their condition really impacts their, how they appear when we discover them. And so even determining whether or not remains are 50 years or older uh, is, is, can be quite complicated and very much determined on the weather, the environment, uh, the situation in which they were or were not buried. So, so <laughs> that's, that's kind of a very complicated answer to your very uh simple answer. No, it's a answer to your very simple question. No, that's great. That's great. You're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange. I'm Chelsea Rose speaking with Dr. Alyssa Bullion, a physical anthropologist or bioarchaeologist with Oregon's Legislative Commission on Indian Services. So before we get further, I just want to kind of back up a little bit and say, what is the LCIS? So I've I've been working with that entity of the government as an archaeologist, getting permits and stuff, but you're nested in that office. And so kind of walk us through a little bit of a day, a day in the life uh, for your for your job here in Oregon, and how you fit into that that system there. Sure. So LCIS, Legislative Commission on Indian Services, so we're a commission within the Oregon Legislature, and our purpose is really to facilitate the communication of concerns and interests between the state of Oregon and the nine federally recognized tribes of Oregon. Um, so I think sometimes people are a little bit confused as to yeah why. Myself, as, as a physical anthropologist and archaeologist, kind of sits within this commission. Um, but, but the commission really has a, a fairly broad um, agenda in terms of our goal, and it's really to ensure that, uh, again, the interests of the tribes are adequately addressed by the state, are understood by the state, and that there's good communication between state agencies and the nine federally recognized tribes of Oregon. So my position fits in there. Because really, um, you know, while my jurisdiction covers any non-forensic human remains finds in the state of Oregon, really a large portion of my job is really focused on ancestral tribal remains. Um, the tribes have been on, on the landscape since time immemorial, so most of those older remains are going to be native in origin just by the fact of how long the tribes have been on the landscape. So that's one part as to why my job is so focused on the kind of tribal relationships. Um, And also just because of the history that anthropologists and archaeologists have had, um, you know, with the tribes throughout history, which has been highly problematic, especially in the way that ancestral remains have been treated often as artifacts um, and in other highly problematic ways. So part of the the focus of my job and and how it falls within that kind of commission on Indian services is both from, again, that logistics perspective of the fact that most of the the cases that I'm dealing with are going to be tribal ancestors and also because, um, you know, this is something that, that really is an important movement in uh, the kind of broader field of anthropology, that kind of reckoning with our history and that relationship uh, between anthropologists and the tribes and the role of ancestral remains in that. And I, I, I do also really want to point out that this position is really the result of um, great efforts from the tribes really advocating that this was a position that they wanted and was greatly needed within the state. So I do also want to make sure that's very clear that this was an initiative 
um, really driven by the tribes. Uh, so again, <laughs> a little bit long-winded introduction, um, but I'm, I'm also happy to try and give you a little bit of sense for what <laughs> a day in, in my uh, regular work life is like, although it's a little bit tricky because my job does cover uh, the entire state of Oregon. Mm-hmm. So I'm dealing with a lot of different regions. I'm dealing with state agencies. I'm dealing with uh, tribal nations. And so one of the things that is really wonderful about my job is it's constantly different. Mm-hmm. Um, so typical days, a lot of times I will also be processing permits. So you said that, you know, most of your experience with LCIS has been through, you know, getting archaeological permits, that that process. So I am responsible for uh, doing the, the kind of recommendations for which tribes need to be consulted in the process of getting archaeological permits. I also review permits to ensure that they have really robust plans uh, in the case that human remains are discovered. So these plans are known as inadvertent discovery plans or IDPs are there and in place so that if there are archaeological excavations happening or other ground disturbing activities and human remains or anything that is suspected to be human remains or burials or funerary objects. So these, these laws do actually kind of extend beyond the human remains themselves to the entire burial context, um, which is a really, really important point. Um, but, but it's really important that if that does happen, that the correct parties are contacted and contacted very quickly because we do want the tribes to be able to be involved from the beginning. All human remains finds, inadvertent human remains finds in the state of Oregon are assumed to be native in ancestry until there's some evidence otherwise. So that really allows us from the start to ensure that there are um, mechanisms in place to ensure that the remains are treated respectfully and in an appropriate manner. So that's a big part of my job from the kind of just maybe more mundane day-to-day basis is going through the permits and making sure that, again, state agencies, private contractors, universities, really anybody conducting archaeology on private or state lands is really aware of that process. Um, And because my position is a new position, just letting people know that I even exist has been a large part of my job so far. A new resource for us. And for those listening, when we say permits, we're talking about archaeologists. Anytime we do archaeological work anywhere in the state, there's a permitting process that we go through. It's a free process, but you do have to be a, a certified you know, you have to meet qualifications to be an archaeologist to go after that permit. And built into that is the consultation with the tribes and and the LCIS. So that's kind of what we're talking about, which is great. And I imagine when you come across human remains um, that you need to kind of help figure out the age and where they where they fit into, you know, what needs to happen with them. There's probably two avenues. I know as an archaeologist, a few times there's been inadvertent discoveries, like you'd mentioned, and it's a very confusing process. And I wish you would have been there on some of them. So I'm glad you're there now for a resource for folks. But I imagine you probably also get people calling because they find something in a closet or a basement or something like that. I know that especially um, in the early days before people really thought about, you know, the ethics and the way that human remains should be treated, there there was a lot more skeletal material kind of floating around casually. Is that something you come across? Yes. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because a large part of my job is as well kind of the the management of ancestors who are brought in or brought to our attention by private citizens. And yeah, a lot of these are 
individuals who had been looted or taken from their original burial places, uh, especially kind of around the turn of the century during this period where looting of archaeological sites was even more kind of widespread, and that included the looting of burials. Um, and there wasn't the same, again, this is still something that's very in process, but, you know, there, there wasn't the same understanding of the, the required respect and importance of these individuals. Um, so that is something that I deal with fairly frequently. And and it's really, you know, a, a process that requires a lot of education of the public. Um, you know, there can often be a lot of fear surrounding wanting to kind of on the one hand do the right thing and return these, these ancestors to their people. But there's often an associated fear that they're going to get in trouble because, you know, something wrong was done in the past. And what I really try to emphasize to people at in, in those cases is that you know what unless it's something that happened fairly recently and even if it is our primary concern especially for myself is to make sure that the ancestors get home and that they are treated um, with respect and can be returned to as close as their original burial um, place as possible and that that's really my focus it's not punitive and you know i i cannot speak for the tribes in every tribe is different, but in most of my conversations surrounding this, the emphasis has really been, again, that it's it's that returning of the ancestors that is the emphasis. It's not punishing people for having taken the ancestors in the first place. We of course want to ensure that these activities don't don't happen any further. But um, you know, just really trying to emphasize to the public that if you do come across these remains, that you know, you really should be. Um, letting us know, reaching out to LCIS um, or the tribes directly often are, are also you know, wonderful resources for that, of course. And we, we can absolutely help facilitate that process and that that's not something to be afraid of in terms of that um, punitive aspect. And and those cases can also be tricky because I think a lot of times there, there remains that have been transferred intergenerationally. So you might have um, a child or a grandchild of the individual who originally acquired those remains. And so the knowledge of the original location is lost. And again, there might be hesitation about revealing more information. But again, it that, that makes our jobs difficult because it's often very important um, to the tribes that ancestors are able to be reinterred as close to their original place as possible. And that's, that's obviously not possible if we have virtually no information about the origin of the individual. Um, and even just identifying which tribes we need to do outreach to can be difficult depending on what information we do or don't have. So, so those cases can definitely be some of the most challenging uh, that I encounter. Oh, I bet. You're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange. I'm Chelsea Rose, and my guest today is Dr. Alyssa Bullion, a physical anthropologist with the state. Um, So what happens if you can determine that the remains don't date to the pre-contact period, if they're more recent, like not maybe forensically relevant, but like a pioneer or something like that? What kind of steps happen then? Ah, so as as with all the cases, it really depends on the context of the find. So in in any context that is non-forensic, be it historical or archaeological, um, we are going to be reaching out to descendant communities. And in the cases of um, you know pioneer cemeteries, sometimes we have signage, sometimes we don't. Um, whether or not they're they're still marked, we may have. 
historical maps that show where cemeteries were. And so we'll actually use those to go through genealogies to see if we can identify kind of any descendants of the individuals and get them involved in the process. Um, but generally, if, if it's a burial that can be protected, our first choice is always to kind of leave that individual interred, whether or not it's, it's historical um, or older. If it's a case where it's maybe eroding out of a bank or otherwise, you know, kind of already out of its context and um, is not able to be kind of kept in its original burial place, we, we have a couple of different options. Um, Again, if if we can rebury the individual close to their original location, that's certainly an option that we'll pursue. If we can get in contact with descendant individuals, we may work with them to decide if there's somewhere else and a burial plot in another established cemetery that they would like to be reinterred. Um, and then beyond that, if we if we can't kind of can't make those connections. We actually right now don't have a great approach for those remains. Um, we have some curational facilities that we can hold them in at the moment, but one of my big projects actually uh, in this position is to work with historic cemeteries uh, and, and other, the Oregon Historic Cemetery Board to think about proper reinterment options for these individuals. Um, I have to say that it's not a type of case that I encounter very often or have encountered very often, but I have only been in this position for about five months now. So I'm sure that <laughs> that, that will be something that comes up. Uh, and it's, it's something that I'm really thinking about what kind of our best options are. But, you know, there's there's laws across Oregon and, and the laws that kind of govern a lot of my work, in part, some of them are, are more derived from the archaeological side and the requirement for protections of native burials specifically. But, you know, any of the situations that I'm dealing with um, for, for human burials are also covered by the laws um, governing cemetery rules and regulations across the state for both modern and historical. You know, whether or not it's a burial that's 5,000 years old or 50 years old or five years old, there's still provisions for protection. I think sometimes we think, oh, because it's an archaeological site, somehow it's it's materially different. And, and while there are maybe some specific laws that are slightly different, in terms of the meaningfulness of that burial and the types of protections that they do receive, um, those do apply across the board. So, mm -hmm. again, uh, this idea that older burials are somehow lesser than or just can be easily moved is actually uh, somewhat of a fallacy. Yeah, yeah. And my next question is is a pretty big change of of uh, focus here. I'm I'm curious. I looked you up, of course, and I saw that a lot of your research focused on Central Asia before you came to Oregon. And I was wondering if you had like a a quick elevator pitch to kind of help us understand, you know, some of your background and 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 how that would contrast. I imagine quite a bit to the work you're doing now. Sure, and and that is something that's been kind of an interesting journey. So. Um, I, I did my graduate work at the at Washington University in St. Louis, and as you mentioned, yeah, I, I focused on Central Asia. I focused on 
the kind of early Islamic medieval period, especially in a, a region of Southeast Uzbekistan. And my focus for that research was looking at especially burials and human remains to understand the spread uh, of the practice practice of Islam uh, into more rural regions of Central Asia. So my primary dissertation site was an early Islamic cemetery kind of up in the highlands in a region that really scholars for a long time had not thought uh, really had robust Muslim communities. And my dissertation site kind of challenged that idea and showed that really there were communities in these areas that were very much engaged in uh, Muslim burial practices. And that kind of challenges some of our ideas of kind of unilineal distribution of, of religious practice at the time. Um, and and so, yeah, in, in some ways that's fairly departed from, from my current work. Um, I have been working in both Oregon and Washington kind of on and off all throughout my graduate work and postdoctoral work um, with the Forest Service. And I also worked for a year with a little-known USDA agency known as the Natural Resources Conservation Service uh, as a cultural resource specialist. And so through that work, I really did develop kind of um, a pretty advanced knowledge of the archaeological and cultural backgrounds of the Pacific Northwest. And so I, I did always have that kind of background, but it for a long time ran parallel to, to kind of my bioarchaeology work in academia. And really, one of the things I really I think is wonderful about my position is it, it brings kind of those two different paths together and I can use my kind of deep knowledge of some of the landscapes and archaeology of this region with all of my osteological backgrounds that I gained during my academic work. Um, and beyond that, you know, <laughs> having to go through the kind of very um, arduous and elaborate process of getting a PhD has also really <laughs> helped me uh, in, in terms of thinking about how to really build up the physical anthropology bioarchaeology program. Because the idea, too, here is not just for me to kind of be here running around, um, you know, making sure ancestors get home, but to really build up the educational resources so that, again, everyone knows what the protocols are so that these ancestors are treated with respect, um, are minimally disturbed. Uh, and and so it's it's really an entire kind of program development that I'm dealing with right now. And, and at the yeah. moment, I'm kind of going in a million different directions at once. But I think that that academic background has really helped me think about breaking down some of the chunks into a little bit more manageable pieces and think about kind of both the short, medium and long term project planning that this position really requires. Yeah, that's great. And on that note, just really briefly as we wrap up, do you have some quick do's and don'ts? So for people listening who um, this listening audience is largely not professional archaeologists. So what are things that um, they should be aware of? Obviously, they should call um, the commission. But but what else? You know, what are some quick do's and don'ts for them? Absolutely. So if you do see anything, if you're, you know, out hiking around or, um, you know, you shouldn't be digging without a, out a permit, but presuming that some, some of you all who are listening are actual professional archaeologists. So if you're conducting excavations or just out on the landscape and you do see something that 
looks like it could be a human bone. Um, first of all, I would say don't don't call in about any bones you find because there's a lot of animal bones out there. But if you have a suspicion that what you're seeing are human remains, um, your first call should actually be to Oregon State Police. Uh, because again, we have to consider that any remains we find could potentially be part of a crime scene or an ongoing investigation. So they really do need to be the first call. And then from there, the, the kind of chain of notification will kick into place. But, um, you know, stay, don't, don't pick them up. Certainly don't uh, try and expose them anymore. I know it might be tempting to kind of one to see what else is there, but really any additional handling or kind of disturbance to the site can be highly problematic, whether or not it's a forensic or non-forensics case. Um, don't take any photos. Uh, it's, it can be, again, something that's problematic, both for forensic or non-forensics cases. We really, a lot of the tribes have, have really um, strong objections to the photographing of remains, period. And it also just prevents there from being kind of widespread distribution about the information and location of any potential human remains finds. Um, again, I think there's more awareness and concern about looting, but it is still something that happens. And so we really don't want there to be a lot of information out there about where potential remains are located. So, so don't take any photos, don't touch them, don't, don't tell anyone other than, you know, the police where the remains are. Please, please, please don't post anything on social media, especially. Um, again, these, these are remains that are people's ancestors, and I think that if the way that sometimes we teach archaeology and that we think of archaeology in the kind of Euro-American Western canon, it sometimes reduces human remains to something more like an artifact. And, and these individuals are not, not artifacts. They're people. They're ancestors. They're people who living, thriving cultures have meaningful continuing connections with, and we have to respect that. So um, what, ab so, what about yeah. someone that's like, um, at, uh, you know, going through a garage and they find something like that? What do they mm -hmm. do? Yeah. So if you feel um, comfortable, you can call the Oregon State Police and they will get in contact uh, with the appropriate people. You can also reach out to LCIS or myself. All of our contact information is on our website and I am more than happy to facilitate those conversations. So those would be the most, um, the kind of most efficacious uh, yeah. people to reach out to if you do come across something like that. Um, and, and again, we we're not looking to get anybody into trouble like that's we're not looking to be punitive we just want the ancestors to go home well i'm so glad that you're here with us in oregon now advocating for this and helping um, people navigate um, these kind of situations so thank you so much for joining us on the show today 
And yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. I look forward to keeping in touch. And um, for everybody, thanks for tuning in. This is Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange. You can find us online at jeffexchange.org, or you can subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher, Pandora, or Spotify. And thank you, and we'll talk to you next month. <laughs>